0: For all your fantasy football needs, check out the Ringer Fantasy Football Show with me, Danny Kelly, along with Danny Heifetz and Craig Horlbeck. That's the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's The Bear, starring Jeremy Allen White, Ayo Adebri, and Eben moss Backrat. Season two follows as the crew work to transform their grimy sandwich joint into a next level spot. It turns out the only thing harder than running a restaurant is opening a new one. Television Academy members can watch all episodes at
2: fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.
1: It is Wednesday, August 2nd. Happy August. By most calculations, the Barbie movie from Greta Gerwig should cross a billion dollars worldwide sometime in the next week. And if it continues on this trajectory and gets to $1.3 billion, which I think it will, it would join the top 20 movies of all time worldwide, not accounting for inflation. That's pretty nuts, considering if you look at that current top 20 list, there are only three films with female protagonists, The Frozen Movies and Titanic. And those are either directed or co-directed by men. In fact, USC's Inclusion Initiative puts out numbers on female film directors in general, and they're pretty embarrassing. The percentage of Hollywood movies directed by women peaked in 2020 at 15% of releases. And last year, was about 10%. For the mega blockbusters, it's even worse. Some more stats here. 52 movies in the history of Hollywood have grossed more than a billion dollars, not adjusted for inflation again. Assuming Barbie joins that group, only five of those were either directed or co-directed by women, less than a tenth. Like I said, it was Frozen and Frozen 2 for Jennifer Lee, Captain Marvel from Anna Bowden, and she also had a male co-director, and then Wonder Woman from Patty Jenkins' solo. That's it. And at the Oscars, only 2% of Best Director nominees have been women. 2%. Greta Gerwig was one of them for Lady Bird. But nothing impacts Hollywood more than a big, fat hit. And Barbie is potentially a very big deal because it's a massive success directed solely by a woman, starring women, and fueled by a majority female audience. That's the first time that's really happened at this level. So, will this actually change all those horrible stats? I kind of think it will. And not just for Gerwig herself, but in nuanced ways that I'm already starting to see in my conversations with studio executives and talent agents. That's what I wanted to explore today, so I asked back Rebecca Keegan, a senior editor of film at the Hollywood Reporter. She's brought some interesting stats, and we're going to get into the Barbie effect. How will female directors actually benefit? From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Rebecca Keegan. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Matt. So I want to talk today about the Barbie effect. And I want to do it not just focused on Greta Gerwig, who obviously she is now an eight-figure director. She will get to do whatever she wants, and she'll probably do a Barbie sequel at some point and make a fortune, if she's not already making a fortune on her points on this movie. But beyond that, because I'm already hearing some chatter in the executive suites about how this is actually meaningful. And we talked a lot about this back when Wonder Woman came out, like, oh, the glass ceiling for female action directors is now gone. You know, the we're going to see a lot more of these. And we have seen a few more women being given these bigger budget projects. But I'm talking about movies at the upper, upper echelon of box office, where they are designed to be mega blockbusters. And I do think that it's not just women that are going to get more jobs on these movies. I do think that the thinking is changing about the audience for these types of movies and that there is a female audience out there that if properly harnessed in the way that Warner Brothers did for Barbie could fuel these mega blockbusters in a way that the Hollywood executive suites have not really considered in the past. Do you agree with that?
3: I do. I mean, just a data point this weekend, I'm going to see Barbie a second time with my little sister. I'm a big sister and big brother's big sisters. She's 17. She's already seen it. She wants to see it again. That sort of multiple viewing kind of hunger that I think Hollywood used to attribute primarily to young males interested in comic book movies, I'm seeing with the Barbie movie among young females.
1: Right. But we've seen this before. We saw it with Hunger Games. We saw mm-hmm. it with Twilight. Mm-hmm. We've seen it with, you know, blockbusters like Crazy Rich Asians. Like, there are female-oriented mass hits out there. Not as many as there are that catered to men with the superhero and action stuff. But those movies were all of a piece where first of all most were directed by men and secondly they were in a genre that was typically associated with men they just had female protagonists the barbie thing is different because this is not a action superhero movie this is a comedy it's based on ip that women are very familiar with but I do think that it's going to open the door, not just for other toy movies, like, yes, Lena Dunham will get to do her Polly Pocket movie, and there'll probably be a million other toy spinoffs. But I think the conversation when you are in meetings with executives where they say, "Okay, we think we can do five, six hundred million dollars with this movie that is catered to a female audience. That, I think, is an easier conversation now.
3: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me about the Barbie audience is, I think, 66% female.
1: Opening weekend, it was actually 69% of ticket buyers domestically were female. And then it actually rose to 71% female in the second weekend, which is unusual.
3: If this movie becomes as big as it looks like it's going to, that also means a lot of men have gone to see Barbie. Oh,
1: yeah, of course. You have to cross over to get to these numbers, just like all of the blockbusters before it that got over that number have appealed to women as well as men. I mean, these Harry Potter movies and the Avengers movies, a lot of women see those movies. I'm talking about the core demo, though. You know, the people that, that fuel that initial interest that spreads and turns into the mass hit.
3: Right, but what's important about that is Historically, the conventional wisdom in Hollywood was that women and girls would go see movies about a male protagonist. They would go see, quote-unquote, male-driven movies, but the men and boys wouldn't go see, quote-unquote, female-driven movies. I don't know if that was based on actual research or if that was just an assumption that people made but what's interesting about barbie is it has proved that you can have this kind of four quadrant movie in a with a very female property i think one of the fears historically had been that something that girls get really excited about by its very nature alienates boys either via marketing or via the fact that millennial and gen z males are more evolved than their predecessors. (laughs) Barbie disproved that.
1: Yeah, I mean, listen, the numbers don't lie, though. If you look at the top 20, other than, as I said, those two animated princess movies, you know, there's really only Titanic in the top 20 as a movie with a clear female protagonist. And obviously, that movie had a lot of other things going on in it that appealed to men. So the numbers do show that when you are talking about the Top, top, top of the spear. We're not talking about movies that are hits. Obviously, there's plenty of movies that appeal to women that are hits. We're talking about the mega blockbusters where you are making your numbers for the whole year off one movie. They are all superhero action IP dominated
3: by men. Right. But that also is a reflection of what Hollywood has chosen to back with its biggest budgets and its largest true. marketing spends. Um, and who it has sort of given the opportunity to direct and write and star in these movies. So it's a little hard to say that that's, you know, responding to market forces versus that is a reflection of the culture that's driven Hollywood for decades. All right. So
1: let's talk about how these directing gigs are doled out. Let's get real about this, because I think there's misconceptions on whether female directors are given opportunities or in the pipelines for these films. This is how it works. When you have an open directing assignment, the agencies often will produce a list of clients that they will then pitch to the studio and the producers will meet with them and have general meetings and then move beyond that. So the problem of lack of female directors started at the agency level. And now, at least for the most part, there are women in the mix for these agency lists. And that's due to a number of reasons. There are more female directors out there. There are you know, programs at Sundance and other places that have given women directors more opportunities to get those first and second movies under their belt. And they do get the meetings more often now. There is still, though, that disconnect between being on the list and given the opportunity to take over what is a big budget franchise. And I think that stems a lot from the risk averse attitude within the industry. If you are looking for a way to not get fired, and let's be honest, most of these studio executives are looking for a way to not get fired. You lean on people with track record. You lean on people who have directed big budget movies in the past who have generated big box office in the past. Don't forget, Greta Gerwig, before she got Barbie, she did a Little Women movie that made more than $200 million worldwide on a budget of of less than $40 million. So that's a massive hit under her belt that gave the studio a little bit more confidence to entrust this property to her. And until more women get the opportunity to show that they can generate these big budget hits, that that's the short-sighted thinking in the executive suites of precedent, precedent, precedent. How do I not get fired by hiring someone? It takes a little bit of risk taking to say, you know what, I'm going to bet on somebody who does not have a track record. But to be honest, that's the entire entertainment business. Like most of these franchises we now know as global phenomenon, they started by someone saying, you know what, let's take a risk on a space opera set in you know, on the Death Star, let's take a risk on a 1940s style serial um, starring an archaeologist. Like no franchise just comes into existence. At some point, there is a risk, and for the most part, the franchises have been led by men over the past 30, 40 years of the blockbuster era. And I do think something in the culture has as were changed. the
0: executives greenlighting the movie. Yeah.
1: Oh, of course, and they're all men. They were. Now there are a few more women. At the upper echelon of these companies, it is still all men. There is not a female CEO of an entertainment company. The only one is Sherry Redstone at Paramount Global. She is the controlling shareholder, but her CEO, Bob Backish, is a man. All the CEOs are men. And there are women leading the studios. Universal has a female top executive, Donna Langley. They're Ooh, that's it now. All the other major studios are men. The chief content officer at Netflix is a woman, Bella Bajaria. And if you look at Amazon Studios, their their top executive is a woman, Jen Salke, and their top film executive is now Courtney Valenti at MGM. She came from Warner Brothers. But all the others are men. So I'm not saying that men can't greenlight Strong, female-oriented projects. Obviously, Toby Emmerich at Warner Brothers Greenlit Barbie, and the CEO of Mattel, Enon Kries, is a man. But this is a systematic problem within the industry, that there are fewer female executives in the upper echelon of these companies. And when you are making value judgments subjectively on what will hit all audiences, men just have a different perspective. They do. I just wonder if the thinking now is going to change about what can be a Billion Three blockbuster.
3: Well, I hope so. I mean, I wrote stories, many stories over the years when there were movies that quote unquote shifted the thinking. I'm thinking of stories I wrote about Bridesmaids, about Hunger Games, about Twilight. And each time there was not as big a shift as I anticipated. As you said, this movie is pushing into box office terrain that is is beyond those.
1: But why was there not a change? You've written about this, the bridesmaids effect. I feel like we did start to see the all-girl raunchy comedy genre explode after bridesmaids. We just saw one this summer with Joy Rye, which did not do very well. But the female fronted action picture did not see a huge bump in my opinion. I mean, we got another Hunger Games movie this year, but other than, you know, a few that are out there, it's remained the province of men, except for a few Marvel movies, you know, Captain Marvel and things like that.
3: Right, I mean, they tend to be these unicorns. And one of my fears is that Barbie, I hope I'm wrong. I so, I can't tell you how much I want to be wrong right now. Mm -hmm. That Barbie becomes considered a unicorn. The genius of Greta Gerwig, this bizarre willingness of Mattel to make such fun of itself and and its brand, um, the extraordinary marketing, like it feels a little bit like something that is very hard to replicate. I hope I'm wrong and I hope we see more and more movies like this, but it's so extraordinary and so unique and also so unique that it's not only a movie that's female driven in terms of its director and its audience and the property it's based on. But it's also like really pointedly feminist in a way that, again, I'm kind of stunned and amazed that it made through all the layers of bureaucracy a movie at this scale has to make it through to get to a movie theater. It just feels like a minor miracle to me, and I'm fascinated by it, but cautious about the idea that, it will, that we will see more films like this.
0: Who do you think is more likely to take risks, new executives who are younger or old executives who have job security? New executives, I think. Even though
1: they could get fired if they make a mistake? They could, but I'm hoping that it's because you want to make a mark. Typically, when people come into a job, they come into a job with a mandate. And if a mandate is to change the thinking or change the trajectory, you got to take a couple of risks and you got to make some swings. The problem that the industry has, and this is probably another show for another day that we will get into, is a lot of these executives are old. Mm -hmm. They're just clinging. They're in their 60s, 70s now, and they're just trying to stay in the game. And that's when I think you see a lot of the same, a lot of the same thinking, going to the same producers, going to the people that have done you right in the past, and you've got decades of relationships and baggage that clings to you. And it takes younger executives in entertainment to bring a fresh perspective and say, okay, maybe we don't do it the same way we do before. Maybe we don't hire, you know, Brian Grazer to be our producer who, you know, is 70 something years old now. Maybe we look to younger talents that could have something fresh to say. And that's where I would hope that some of these better and more interesting and more modern voices would get more chances.
2: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness.
1: You mentioned that these movies are often seen as unicorns or they're seen as uh, aberrations. But I've also talked to female studio executives who say, yeah, that's the excuse. Right. Whenever something succeeds is, oh, okay, that was a fluke. Let's go back to making the 10 movies that we're comfortable making. Right. And at what point is it not a fluke? And at what point... Does something like the success of Barbie say, you know what, there's an audience here that is not being served. It is underserved. We can talk all we want about the Warner's marketing, but something else was going on. This movie spoke to people in a way that suggests they had not been served properly by the existing studio offerings. And if you look at the rest of this summer, one after another, it's Indiana Jones, it's Mission Impossible. It's fast. It's, you know, these big explosions. Yes, there was Little Mermaid for women, but there is a dearth of this type of movie that explicitly says to female audiences, this is for you. Why doesn't that change? Why does that change? And what do the numbers suggest about that?
3: That is a vast mystery to me. The fact that women are 50% of the population and that big budget movies geared toward women, we usually get like, two or three a year
1: horror over indexes with women actually Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so with the horror all the horror movies do appeal to women there's a you you can go into the psychology of why that's the case but they even if there are not women at the forefront of those movies they do appeal to women
3: right but but i mean to your point it does seem like the fact that this audience is hungry for content has been proven over and over and over again. And when I say this movie is a unicorn, I don't say it's a unicorn in the sense that it proves there's an audience. I'm saying it's a unicorn in the sense that it got the opportunity to exist in as singular and as kind of um grandly executed as it was. Why you wouldn't continue serving an audience like this over and over again, I don't know. I mean, this is sort of a Obvious thing to say, but good movies are hard. (laughs) And see, I feel like we talk about them like they're really easy to make. There are, they're not really easy to make. And the fact that we had two of them this past weekend with Oppenheimer and Barbie opening. You know, those are not movies that you see at the box office every weekend anymore, particularly in an era when there is so much dependence on IP, when release dates are staked out often before there is actually an idea or a script to justify them.
1: Right. I mean, this is the overall issue here is that this is a franchise business. And for the most part, franchises in Hollywood do not star leading women. I mean, if you look at the big ones of the summer, I mentioned them, Fast, Mission, Indie, you know, those are massive franchises, none of which star women, though those are sort of dying franchises and the recycling of the 80s, 90s, 2000 hits starring men seems to be wearing thin with audiences. Do you think Barbie will start the female franchise era and that's what is going on here?
3: I mean, it could. The question is, like, what are the properties that people will be mining? There, there aren't as many <laughs> sort of toys and and pre existing pieces of intellectual property that were targeted toward women in the first. I mean, place. there's
1: comic book stuff. Like, we got the Marvels coming out this fall, and that's a sequel to Captain Marvel. And we, you know, we had Miss Marvel, and we've got there are other female heroes that are going to likely get a chance. But outside of the superhero realm. What are the female IP-driven franchises?
3: Well, a lot of it historically has come from young adult literature. I mean, that's where we got the Twilight franchise and the Hunger Games franchise. And that has sort of yielded um, a lot of the properties that have really drawn female audiences.
1: But I feel like after Hunger Games and Twilight, it sort of dropped off. Divergent didn't work. Right. And then it sort of went away. Now you see it a lot on Netflix with like the you know the YA stuff and but in theaters you don't see it as much it's certainly not at the budgets that would generate the kind of box office we're seeing.
3: I don't think there are as many properties out there waiting to be adapted. I think the other thing that's interesting is there are some franchises that you don't necessarily associate with women that have had really large female audiences like among the Marvel movies, the Black Panther movies have tended to play really well with women and they've tended to have a lot mm-hmm. of women in their cast. You know, it's not more than 50-50, I think, right. I, but it's still a much larger portion than a lot of the other Marvel movies. So I think yeah. what we associate with necessarily being, you know, a female-fueled film is probably a little broader then we're we're
1: thinking about. I I know this is not easy as like male fronted equals men, female fronted equals women. I I know that. I I do wonder if there's a star factor here that Mm -hmm. could be shifting in the culture. Because if you look at the movie stars, whatever that means today, under 40, when I think of that, I think mostly of women these days. You know, Mm -hmm. I think of Jennifer Lawrence and Emma Stone and Margot Robbie and Craig's favorite Anna D'Armas and Zendaya like those are the stars that I feel like are driving the culture and the movies a lot more than the male stars under 40. I mean, who is it like Miles Teller and Timothy Thelma. Chalamet like yeah. those guys like Michael B Jordan, sure, but I feel like the the culture has shifted in a way where audiences gravitate towards the female stars, both men and women.
3: That's interesting. I lo- I know you love it when I bring up the 1940s, and it and it reminds <laughs> me of um, uh, when Barbara. I Stan remember it cannabis. well. <laughs> no, but I and I, why is that though? Like, w- w- why why are the young female stars gaining more traction than the young male stars?
1: I think it's a lot of genre choices. Like the the big brawny action movie thing isn't as big of a deal, and right. younger audiences don't care as much. They don't distinguish between male and female stars as much as previous generations might have. Craig, do you care if a movie star is a man or a woman?
0: No, I don't care as long as the movie's good. But I think the reason why there's more traction for younger female stars than males, is because all the, the male stars, all the old ones haven't gone away. And, and yes. the male actors last oh, longer. Oh, that's <laughs> such true. a good
3: point. Yeah, that is such a good point. I mean, one thing we haven't talked about in this conversation is women over 40, which Hollywood has traditionally been exceptionally unkind to. You know, we have Harrison Ford now. What is he, 80? Fronting a summer tentpole. There is no female equivalent of that. And so no one has like slid over on the couch and made room for these young male stars. A lot of actresses have been pushed off the couch, um, which has made room for a younger generation of female stars. And that's kind of a bummer.
1: It is. And in a previous generation, perhaps someone like Keanu Reeves wouldn't star in John Wick. It would be a new, fresh star that would be a movie star now. But instead, it's Keanu Reeves playing the hits. It's Jason Statham in the Giant Shark movie. It's like a lot of these guys that have been around and are now seen as bankable. There's no effort being made to create stars. And I think that leaves this lane open for a female-fronted crew of star-driven movies.
3: Yes, we'll take our female-fronted movies. Um, it would be great if they could have a broad range of ages in them in the same way that male actors are allowed to age on screen. Yes.
1: I started this conversation on an optimistic note based on some conversations I've had with people that that they are going to give female directors more latitude. They are going to take chances on more female. I, I just I, I'm wondering if it's lip service. I wonder if, you know, we'll see a slight uptick in the number of movies directed by women, but, you know, uh, it's hard. Change is hard in this
3: business. Yeah, I mean, historically, as someone who's been writing about the issue of female directors in particular for 20 years, change is really, really, really slow. And you have to take wins like Barbie where you can get them, and you have to keep pushing, and you have to be aware that you know, three weeks from now, Hollywood with its short attention span will have moved on to some some great new other wonderful thing.
1: All right, Rebecca Keegan, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Matt. All right, we are back with the call sheet. My prediction. Craig, did you see that there was some developments last night in the Writers Guild standoff with the studio? They have agreed officially to talk about talking. Yeah, do you see this as just smoke or fire? I actually see this as real. Uh, The Guild put out a note to members last night saying that they had a An outreach call from the studio side. And I actually knew this was happening. I reported this in my Puck newsletter on Sunday. The CEOs had a meeting on Friday where they expressed a desire to get back in the room with the Writers Guild. That manifested in a call from the lead negotiator on Monday. And they said, We would like to set a meeting for Friday, this Friday, where we will talk about the parameters for renewed negotiations. And that might seem like nothing. But after weeks and weeks and weeks of no talks and just dueling press releases and insults, I actually think this is a pretty big deal. And it signals that the studios want to make a deal here. And I believe they do in this
0: instance. Do you think the guild's pressure that they've put on the AMPTP through all the various ways they put pressure has expedited this? Or was this kind of always going to happen? Was this kind of always the timeline?
1: I think that the end of summer, the end of August uh, was kind of the time when the studio said, OK, we're going to get serious about it. So they perhaps have moved this up because of the aggressive shutdowns that the Guild did. But, you know, once the the actors went on strike, everything shut down. So it was really just kind of a matter of uh, when do we want to restart here? And I, I, I think that they're going to the writers first because. They know that in order to get things up and running, they want the writers to be able to start writing again. And then the actors will start to go back into production when they can make a deal with them. So if they want to get the fall TV season started, it makes sense to go to the writers first. I've also heard that the rhetoric coming out of the actors has really annoyed some of the studio heads and that they are more likely to go back to the writers first uh, in part because of that. I don't know if that's true, but that's certainly going around town.
0: So you think it's most likely that they they make strike a deal with the writers first and then the actors later. I think that's the
1: goal. I mean, we'll see how that plays out and whether they're willing to make some concessions for the writers that they can that they, you know, will allow the writers to say, "Okay, this strike was worth it. That we went out for uh, 3 months now and we're getting significant gains." We'll see if that actually happens. Um, You know, this is not a resolution of the strike. It's an agreement to potentially restart talks. And that is a big deal, a big positive. So does this move up your prediction of when the strike will end or no? No, I still say mid to late September. uh, But my prediction is that this is a real thing. This is not lip service. This is not them just prolonging. Everything that I have been told is that this is a real olive branch. They want to make a deal.
0: Let's say a deal is struck earlier than we think. Let's say in two weeks, everything is resolved. Can movies get moved back? Will Challengers get moved back to November or no?
1: Maybe the stuff that is already done where they have the movie in the can they just pushed it because of the promotion issue if Uh the actors are no longer on strike they can just restart stuff i don't know if they will in that case because there's a whole apparatus around the promotion plan where they you know they've already punted it to next year maybe they'll keep that but some of these movies especially the award season movies may try to slip in there if they can resolve this in the next few weeks But, but keep in mind when there's a deal done it doesn't just mean that the switch gets flip back on and Hollywood restarts. They've got to ratify the deal. They've got to paper it. They've got to do all these things. So it's going to be weeks after a deal is struck before any production can restart.
0: Okay. Well, we'll see.
1: All right. That's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Rebecca Keegan. I want to thank producer Craig Horbeck, our editor, Jesse Lopez. And I want to thank you. We'll see you later this week.
2: This episode is brought to you by State Farm.